0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Well, if you say so, Jim. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of Martin Newell. Um, This is in connection to a live performance that he's doing at the Norwich Arts Centre on Thursday, the 9th of January. 2020 obviously that might have been and gone which is just one of those things but anyway this is the interview um before that particular evening where we talk about life love poetry and all the other kind of groovy stuff martin newell newell the english singer songwriter and also a member or he was the cleaners from venus and much much more this is the interview It does go on a long time, but do pay attention, I will test you at the end. And uh, this is the first part, and the only part really, but this is the beginning, where I began by asking him about what we can expect at the Norwich Arts Centre, performance and film and much, much more. And this is Martin... And his response. Martin, take it away. Well, I,
1: I was originally, you know, I've done the Art Centre a few times. It's almost kind of like a sister Art Centre to Colchester, isn't it? Which is yeah. my favourite venue. I've played Norwich Art Centre a few times in different capacities and combos. But um, the film, Upstairs Planet, was a film that was made about me by the kind of, um, I guess you would call him a maverick director, Graham bendel And it's part of a trilogy one was about Vic Goddard and another one, the, probably the most famous one, award nominated, was um, called Billy Childish is Dead. Billy Childish, of course, is another polymath and uh, probably quite well known to the public for the, the various bands he's been in. Oh, and of course, he was uh, one, he was the head of the Stuckists as well, which he was, he was Tracy Emin, one of Tracy Emin's yes. boyfriends. That's right. Um, I, I, I'm not one of Tracy. i former boyfriends, though, so so mm-hmm. you're quite safe with me.
2: We can clear and, that um, one up. On. And the
1: film, the film was made about me because I've had. Well, I don't regard it as a career. I, I regard it as a, a, a series of different jobs which have lined up to make me an income. But but um, it's about my checkered career, really.
2: Yes.
1: Because I had, you know, I was a, what you call a troubled teenager, and then. I joined a glam rock band, which was the saving of me, and then played in a number of bands, and then at some point became a very published poet in the 90s.
0: Which is always nice, actually, because it was interesting, your (laughs) your, your sort of glam rock period, because you were right there during it, but you probably didn't quite fit in at the same time with your band Plod. I was too young.
1: I mean, we weren't as old as the other glam rockers. You know, all those guys were you know, we'll mop the hoople at one end, who are about ten or twelve years older than us in some cases. And I mean our drummer was sixteen when I joined and I was only nineteen. Yes. We were teenagers. I mean, if it hadn't been for one particular song which is now on the internet, I doubt we'd be remembered at all. apart from the fact that I wrote an early memoir called This Little Ziggy. In fact I've just finished the second memoir, which is called The Greatest Living Englishman and that's kind of created a bit of interest but um, I've just written books. I didn't take any notice of what other people were doing or whether I got any press coverage. I mean, at some point I must have cared about it, but I felt from quite early on that I was outside the game, even as an outside, as, as in an outsider's world. I was an outsider within that or without that. Yes. And, and thought, well, if, if they're not going to let me join in, if they're not going to let me join in their game, I'm going to start my own game. So sometime in the late 70s or 80s, I just started releasing albums on cassette and not kind of bothering to send them to review, although we did get reviewed sometimes. And then I got enticed back into making records. But the whole thing is that I'm an East Anglian. you know, I'm from Essex and East Anglia. and, And I just don't see this big thing about London. I try and avoid going there. I've always done that. And of course... They don't know me. And I think at some point an antagonism was set up. I don't know, not can't say with any particular people, but they're generally, when I do get reviewed, it's generally a bit sniffy, but it hasn't made any difference to my sales. And kind of lately I've become internationally famous in America for being this outsider musician who's actually tuneful and not making challenging art statements, but just writing pop songs. Yes. And I don't think they like it very much. We've had a couple of reviews recently, and you know they're kind of all right. Oh, here's here's Martin who hasn't really you know featured much, or the world's coming round to him now. But you know, I've, I've, they don't, I can do without them really. Yes. I do what I want.
0: Well, it's quite interesting. I really do do what I want. (laughs) I know. But there was quite a few kind of eccentric characters around this area. There was a performance artist called Bruce Lacey who was kind of, he'd done... Oh, yeah, I've seen him. And he's... Bruce Lacey and
1: Joe Bruce. He was the hippie guy, wasn't he? He was the
0: hippie guy. He was at every festival that was happening in the 70s and a few in the 80s where he was often quite naked with a few feathers doing some North American Indian kind of performance. So yep, there was there a. Professor un- Bruce Lacey. So he was, he was kind of one of those characters along with the 60s kind of movement that brought in performance art. And obviously you had Yoko Ono and you had the sort of 1967 Summer of Love, which was the Ali Pali with the 24 or 14 hour Technicolor Dream. So there was a lot of stuff going on at that time when you must have been. I 19. knew all about it,
1: but it was kind of way before my. Uh, you know not way before my time but I was still you know my mark I was that sort of sufficiently of that age when that was going on I was probably still just in short trousers.
0: Yes but you must have been starting to pick up because because you're a bit younger than people like David Bowie and Lemmy who were both born the same year and they both always would say their the most influential person they they remember when they were in their teens was people like Little Richard so who was your sort of moment where you had a oh my god that's it that's what I want to do?
1: Well, I was pretty mad about the Beatles. I know that sounds probably trite. I, and I, I really liked the Who. I mean, when I first started making music and getting reviewed, people said, oh, especially the Yanks and the Germans, they they said, oh, it sounds like the Kinks. But what I was after was the same thing as as Pete Townsend and Ray Davis were after, which was kind of um, to write about England, the country which in which I lived and which bore me to write about it in a parochial way to write about its little one-man-owner garages to almost to get polaroids of it to to photograph it before it disappeared and that's what i did in my songs and some people seem to think this is marvelous in fact everybody but the english seems to think it's marvelous because of course to my fellow countrymen such things are a mundanity and then when i speak to people in conversation about things that have gone not necessarily out of nostalgia, but just because I've got this unusual memory, they say, how do you remember this stuff? Yes. You know, and I said, I don't know, I just do. It's Maybe I'm on the spectrum or something. <laughs> well, but uh, I, that, that's what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about what I said. I couldn't write about... about um, you know, route sixty six because I, I kind of knew more about the A twelve. Yes, well
0: that's right. I know. <laughs> well I
1: think Biddy uh, you know in, in nineteen seventy three we were up and down the road to Norwich a lot. I loved coming to Norwich. I thought it was a great city. A fine city. You know, city. when you go to Norwich when you go to Norwich it says, Welcome to Norwich, a fine city. Norwich could not be done under the Trade Descriptions Act for that. I've always really liked it. Yes. And and um and that's why I'm doing Norwich and didn't do the last one in London, for instance. And so, we had a showing just before Christmas in in uh, Bloomsbury, quite a prestigious little arts venue called the Horse Hospital. But I didn't. I didn't do a performance of that. I didn't leave Colchester for that one. I did do the Regent Street one. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't go to. Oh, where it? they showed it on Broadway as well. And it's a university theatre, a university place.
2: Yeah. I,
1: I don't have to go if I don't want to.
2: Which is, you know, like,
1: I, I just don't want to trail everywhere. Be be everywhere. I, sometimes I just want to get on with, you know, writing songs or something. Yeah, you, you know, you don't, you, you don't have to. I, I, I said this in the book. You don't have to be famous if you don't want to. You don't have to play spot the. You don't have to meet all these reptiles and hang around. You don't have to, you know, sniff the silly shirt, But you don't have to tip the drink down and have terrible psychological problems. You you can just kind of. I don't know, go out for a bike (laughs) ride.
0: <laughs> yes, well, that's sometimes what I do. So going back to that early '70s period, when when you know the '60s had sort of come to a close, and, and by 1970 it felt like the party was over. You had you know Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and Jim Morrison had all died. You had Altamont. Woodstock had just about survived, but it you know had been a bit of a disaster, really. And so that party felt like it was finishing. So coming along in yeah, it was in, the end. It, So coming it was along, all... yeah, I was going to say coming along in the '70s. Did you feel like? As, as part of that new, not new wave, new wave, but, you know, an, another group of people who were coming in. Did you feel... I did, I
1: did, definitely. I felt like, you know, I felt very much like when I heard, uh, and it was an, an unusual album to be listening to, when I heard Hunky Dory, it wasn't a very bought album at the time it came out. And a, a girl I knew who was rather unusual brought it in and said, you might like this. I heard that line, um, you know, I think, hello, you pretty things. All the strangers came today. Yeah. And it looks like they're here to stay. I was one of those. And also, when he wrote All the Young Dudes uh, and 72, I definitely felt I was one of them. I was not one of these old, bearded, already prematurely sage hippies at, at all of 24 or 25, remembering the old days of 1967, and thinking, no, this isn't it. We... I thought the future was going to be all glittery and space-age. I mean, I could quite see it with the suite and Bowie and, and all that. I thought, that's what we should be doing.
2: Yes, well... well and
1: okay. so now I was, you know, like Mick Jagger said, an Englishman doesn't generally have to be asked more than once to get into a dress. Uh, you know, I was straight on with the lipstick and, the, <laughs> and the, the eyeliner and stuff in, you know, 71, that sort of time. And, you know, I definitely felt that I was part of that.
0: Yes, well, absolutely. And did you find your voice and find the sound of the band quite... This is your glam rock band, Plod. Did that sort of come together quite quickly?
1: Uh, Well, they were already existing band, and it wasn't my name. I'd never have called a band Plod. I'd have called them something like Speedy and the Dupes or something like that, or some space-age name, but but, um, but I, it was an existing band and I'd been in a bit of trouble and I realized that almost, well, I was 19, but I was nearly 20 and suddenly thought, if I don't get in a band soon, I'm never going to do it. And I would like to have been a guitarist, but I wasn't at that point a particularly good guitarist. And someone said, we need a singer. Can you sing? And I said, yeah, and kind of <laughs> put the kit on and learned the job as I went along.
0: And, it, and, so, and and so and, and just before that, you said, you know, did you have a bit of a troubled youth? Was, was it going to be crime or music?
1: It wouldn't have been. Well, it wouldn't have been crime. It wouldn't have been stealing things or fighting. It would have been, you know, probably, you know, taking pills or something. But even by almost twenty, I'd realised that if I was going to keep my mind, that was that was would have its limitations. I had a, a short but violent association. <laughs> you know with taking you know things like speed and acid and it sort of scrambled me a bit but i pulled myself out moved areas got myself out of this thing and joined a band
2: yes i don't is... know
1: how i did that it was probably one of the most the single most important thing i ever did in my life yes. i i think it just it was a gateway to everything else that's happened
0: well, some people have that self-preservation, you know, self-preservation society yeah. and, and, you know, and people like Lemmy always, though he did drink and take a lot of speed, he did also seem to have an ability to know how to sort of handle himself and, uh, and to keep it together, which was quite unbelievable. So you must have also had that quality that you weren't going to die at 27 with a syringe in your vein.
1: No, absolutely not. No, I mean, I, I, I didn't want that. I had a romantic idea that that might be the case when I was 18. But I think at, at 17 or 18, you're allowed to think of yourself as doomed and impossibly alienated. I mean, a whole movement sprang out of it. They were called goth, and I thoroughly sympathized with them. But, you know, you're allowed to do that for a bit. But, um, and and it's and in the natural order of things that, you know, a curious teenager who reads a few strange books would begin to think like that. But, yeah, um, but, you know, eventually business had to be done. Nice. And I thoroughly enjoyed being in a band. Yeah. You know, I really did. I, I loved prancing around like a wazzock, you know, <laughs> running all over the stage. I mean, Norwich was a recipient of this. And so was the Sunshine Rooms at East Dereham. <laughs> and the, and the, and, the, and Hadley Suffolk and all these different you know we must have been one of the last of those kind of bands who went round in a transit van doing those sort of gigs because because I, I think it you know the kind of band we were that, that probably stopped sometime just before punk yeah. it, it certainly had lost its edge well, I it was you- still fun we would was great getting in that wagon and, I... and mucking about and the rudeness of it all, the filth that we used to, the jokes. And But we, we were, you know, pretty innocent, really. It was just a bit of cider and you know, bodily noises and all the rest of the stuff. We got, you know, we didn't do anybody any harm, except uh, we got a few headaches and occasionally cocked things up. <laughs>
0: well, I suppose a, a, a sort of group of young men in a transit van, personal hygiene was probably up low on the... Probably low on the well, sort of, no, you know. I was the
1: first lady of that band, actually. It was me with the three wishes of three wishes deodorant and the and the makeup and the face pads and all the rest of it But, but I think it was it was just a really great time. I'm really glad it was two, that I did those two years in that band. What it teaches you what it teaches a bunch of otherwise undisciplined young men. it gives you not exactly a military thing but it teaches you. There's only six of you. There's four band members and two roadies, and you're in a van. You're going somewhere where people don't know you, may not like you, and you've got to learn to cooperate. And remember that we didn't have mobile phones in those days, or indeed landlines. People used to ring my mums and leave a message, and I'd ring my mums from a call box and say, have we got this? And they said, yeah, ring this guy. And we kind of ran the whole business from a phone box on East Hill.
0: Yes, with two P-pieces, probably.
1: meant that if we said look we're we're leaving Colchester for this gig in Norwich and we're going to have to leave at four we had to be at the bottom of East Hill and we knew that well in advance and we were there and we always made the gigs so you know to look at it now and say well you've got four young men in their teens and early 20s with no mobile phones or not even a landline how are you going to do this but we did it and and so did other people
0: I know. I've got. There's a lot of interesting. Well, not interesting, but there's a lot of stories of people sort of having to sort of wait outside phone boxes, pretending, you know, like taking a phone call from sometimes quite famous people, pretending it's their office, whereas actually it wasn't. It was just, you know, somewhere in the Oh, oh yeah.
1: Well, Richard Branson did that. Richard Branson ran Virgin from a, a I think, a, a kind of a small, a couple of lockers and a phone box.
0: Yes, which is. And he led
1: virgin Virgin, and they were vinyl as well. So is- he, you know, he was. Quite an enterprising guy.
0: What a very and then after you had your plod, pl- the experience with Plod, which was a bit glam. Then you went into a more of a progressive, you know, rock band with Jip. Which um, was that quite a transformation? Having a sort of a new, a new sort of lineup of people to sort of work with. And we
1: were, we were as at this point is 1976. It's a kind of dead man's gulch of rock and roll. Punk hasn't started, and nobody knows that it's going to be punk. We were, as Malcolm Muggridge might have said, lost in the darkness of change, you know. So um, while well, well, we were thinking, what's it going to be? We've had, you know, hippie stuff. We've had glam. And there was this period of about 18 months or two years where the charts were absolute rubbish, presided over by... Disc jockeys on Radio 1 who were all pretend gentlemen farmers and talked to these gurgly voices just like that. And it was like one or two still do who are still alive. And um, and it was intolerable. So you would, you know, the kind of things I'd be listening to was, I don't know, a bit steely Dan, Alex Harvey, Dr. Feelgood, Pub Rock, and eventually punk burst forth and flowered. But in the interim, nobody knew what was going to happen. of course, I just thought, oh, there's this band in Ipswich and they need a singer. And a bass player who was very good was going to join. And I thought, well, he's a really good musician. He must know what's going on. So I joined this band. And so I'm in this great prog rock band and we're sort of halfway to Germany and we're building up a following and suddenly punk starts. So we've got (laughs) long hair and double neck guitars, sack heel boots and all the rest of it. We've got to follow him. And despite punk's popularity, not everybody suddenly became punk any more than the people who were punks, one or two of whom I became very close friends with, uh, like Captain Sensible, they didn't come out fully formed as punks. They'd all been long-haired hippies in bands with double-neck guitars, many of them, the same as me. But it's just uh, that I was in an Ipswich band, the band was already going, we were good to go, we went to Germany, we came back from Germany, we had followings in Norwich and Bury, and we thought, well, you know, hard work will do it, we'll break through. Yes. But in fact, we never did. We
2: didn't.
0: we not do.
1: not as a, as a big. We, but we, you know, we worked. It was another three years apprenticeship, kind of on the road. I, I developed stagecraft. I calmed down a bit. Yes.
2: Um,
1: and the guys in jet, they were they were solid Ipswich lads. You know, they were really very nice. They weren't sort of sort of edgy or anything. They were some of them. One or two of them were a, few, a, a couple of years older than me. So I, it was kind of like. Tra- chaining a young collie dog to an older, more experienced one. I gradually learned to be a bit more civilised, you
2: know.
0: Nice.
1: To eat with a knife and fork and not insult with people.
0: Because yes. it was interesting, because I spoke to Richard Strange, who was in The Doctors of Madness, and he was a, a, a bit, I suppose, the opposite to you. That he, they, they appeared two years too early for Punk, and it was a bit like... oh They
1: did, I saw them. I saw them at Colchester in about 1975.
0: Yes, I think that was the problem. When, I, I think it was like, oh, my God, we're going to be too old. when they Again, they didn't know what was coming, but they realised that they'd got there a bit too soon. You know, it was a bit like turning up at a party at 7 o'clock where you think you needed to be there at 9, mate. You know, you've, you're going to pee. Well, and,
1: I've, I have written before, you know, being ahead of your time is perfectly as useless as being behind your time. <laughs> so, well, yeah. it is. I mean, if you're not of your time... Yes. You know, that's that's your problem. It doesn't matter whether you're ahead. And what happened was I was then ahead of my time because, uh, ironically enough, I foresaw that something like the internet would happen, that one day the musicians would gain control of the, the means of manufacturing, if you like, without waxing too Marxist on this. Um, and that's what happens. The Porter Studio was invented. And I thought, right, I don't need the music industry at all because I just wanted to make records. And the one thing I couldn't do was go in an expensive studio, so I didn't have any money. And I was washing up dishes in a restaurant. So when I got the Porter studio, I just thought, right, this is it. In theory, I now have the same facilities as the Beatles, and I will make my own records, produce my own records, and release them on cassette. And lo-fi they may have been, but gradually I thought this way. And you can, you can kind of look me up now, and you'll find that I'm the... I'm the, the, the godfather of lo fi or cassette culture. Well,
2: absolutely. Or, or
1: instrumental in it. And if you wiki me, you find that. And I thought, wow, I'm a godfather of something.
2: Blimey. It's
1: a bit late now, but, you know, I'm old enough to be a godfather. So, uh, so yes. we, we did. And that was ahead of my time because, had in, if in 1982 or 85, I'd have had the internet, I could have gone out and conquered the world. But we didn't have the internet. I didn't know what that media would be, that medium would be, which allowed musicians to make their own music, manufacture their own music, publicise their own music, circulate it to people outside of the normal swathe of a, the London cognoscenti yes. And that's what, well, that's what we did. And I've, I've been a beneficiary of it. I'm completely digitised now. It wasn't too painful.
0: <laughs> no, no. Of my voice. You could yes. <laughs> normally they give you hydrocortisone so, for that, but so um. I have
1: this thing where you know Spotify. I've got a man called Johnny who understands the tech a little bit better than I do. He said, "Look, we could we could reclaim all this stuff of yours because I, I owned most of my songs and most of my albums, and we've just got them registered with various platforms like Spotify and other people, and we've just we just got them. That's a and it's pennies and halfpennies, but when you've got 40 albums, it's a lot of pennies and halfpennies.
0: Yes, because I realise... So in know. many ways,
1: th- there are much bigger rock stars who sold the family silver and do not have that
0: privilege. No, because actually that's quite interesting because I always uh, you know, find that uh, that side of the, biz- the business, which is kind of murky. And I remember Hunter S. Thompson has a great quote about it. About sort of I don't know I have to find it before sort of trying to um, re, re, re sort of um, recite it. But it was kind of it was interesting that a lot of those bands who got the two hundred thousand a half million are now sort of still in debt to EMI or Virgin or whatever, and will yeah. never own their music. Whereas actually, so it's like they're never going to give you a penny for that. But you, you you blew your your sort of inheritance very quickly. Whereas I, I suppose with you you owned a new you've got all the publishing for all the all the stuff. Well, that I could not sell
1: a lot of my stuff you know i couldn't i couldn't interest the music industry i mean it's is in my new book i i put tony stratton smith who was Genesis's manager and very very good bloke a real gentleman guy you know and i, I was summoned to his office in Waldorf street he said i really like this song but i think you should I'm, i get the impression when i'm listening to your album inverted commas that i'm listening to a sketchbook and i said that's because it's raw and i want it to be like that." He couldn't see that. He said, Look, if we can get you into a proper studio with real producers and all that stuff I said, Yeah, all right. But we tried it with one with the song and and it kind of didn't work and nine months later with this song that I really felt had captured the you know, the zeitgeist of the mid eighties, Thatcher and all that and what what had happened to, to people. And they just missed the window, you know, and and I thought, this is why they hang around with the music industry. They've Got all this money and all this power, and they can't get a simple record out. They just can't do it. They could have put a bit of compression on this thing, bunged it onto plastic, and put it out. And and then just given it a bit of a push, which they had the muscle for. And we might have had a, we might have had a, a you know a song of a year out of it, but that never happened. Yes. And yeah. so I thought, you know, these guys cannot organise, you know, the proverbial booze up in a brewery. So. So notice how I've adapted my speech for radio. That's and, great, um, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, so I've with the BBC. And, and so, so um, I just thought we can, yeah, you know, I can do this. And I just have to resign myself that if I sell 400 well-sold, well-meant records, as opposed to 400,000 records that have been mucked about, compromised, and, and, and just generally upset me with... Um, I'd rather sell 400, not be famous, but just have those sales well met. And, and, and as one of the narrators of a film about me says, you know, to be, of a, to, to be of a huge amount of value to a small amount of people rather than to be of some value to a mass of people.
0: Yes, which is which is always, I think when John Peel used to have his show, he he always just pictured one little young person somewhere you know, sitting, you know, with their little radio, sort of. And, and sort of, I think that was what he, at the time, could sort of imagine, because people like Steve, right, in the afternoon had billions, and the wonderful Mike Reed had billions, whereas John Peel probably felt like Norman Nomates in the corner.
1: I, I think he... I don't think he did. I think he had really solid, solid support, but it may not have been the, the support of the... I mean, he's revered m- more... Than a DJ you wouldn't think John Peel was a DJ he no. was a he was a force of his own wasn't he really he was but I think
0: he got a lot more appreciation when he unfortunately died than when he was alive well I think. people do
1: <laughs> people <laughs> do I will yes. I'm going to be hugely mourned when I die <laughs> no, yes. And I'd, I'd really like some of it now, actually. I have good. mind to hold my own funeral yeah, There's probably people gonna,
0: Yes, people are going to turn up <laughs> to your funeral that you have never met, but will have sort of anecdotes about... No, I know,
1: and they'll all claim they knew me, and they yes, didn't, and I'll you. tell them so. so I'd, I'll have that Marshall McLuhan moment, like in, in Woody Allen's film, Annie Hall, where I'll actually stroll up to someone at my funeral and say, actually, I didn't say that at all. <laughs> and that's not what I was like. Wouldn't is, that be great?
0: This, this would be <laughs> handy. Yes, you'd like to see what your funeral was going to be like, whether you could get, you know, like a sellout. But anyway, look, during the 80s, which the 80s is always a fascinating decade because you had the, the kind of great rise of Thatcherism, but you also had huge unemployment. And a lot of people during that time, especially bands that had started, the indie bands, they had that sort of period of unemployment because you, you, know, you could get in the Enterprise Allowance or Job Seekers Allowance and sort of create a few albums and do for five years. But your 80s was phenomenally productive because you were bringing out an album a year which was all these kind of the self-released albums so did you feel sort of aware of that because what I noticed with people who were in bands before that decade, as, you know, as an example, like David Bowie or, or Robert Plant, they found the 80s quite difficult. They didn't know what to do and they tried to follow this, the trend rather than set the trend, whereas bands who were developing at the time in that zeitgeist moment, you know, capture the indie sound. So how did you sort of cope navigate in that next decade? I've got no
1: idea. I mean, a lot of people think of me as a kind of, uh, now, think of me as a, my height is an '80s artist, although the most famous album is a solo album called *The Greatest Living Englishman*. But during the '80s, I was quite poor, but I was reasonably happy, and I was very creative. And I was looking after this ramshackle house, and you know, in return for cheap rent, I looked after took the students' rent, read their meters, you know, sorted out disputes, and all the rest of it and um, looked after some step kids and some ducks and all the rest of it. It wasn't exactly a hippie thing, but it was pretty bohemian. And I was making albums whenever we, all the time when I got a bit of spare time, uh, occasionally made, um, and also the eighties was a time of quite, I was quite financially insecure, but we always, we always just about made the rent and had food on the table. And and um, I don't want to over idealise it, but I didn't feel particularly in the loop. I thought that, especially after punk had kind of faded a bit, the the world seemed to be full of men in silly haircuts and um, you know wearing the tablecloth and bellowing in big important voices.
0: Yes, well there was big
1: big big epic stuff, which actually much of it didn't mean anything, you know. Um, it means nothing to me. In in Vienna was about in the song Vienna was about right. It meant nothing to me. What it what was, this, this about. <laughs> I know. But... Well, yes yeah, it means nothing to me. And, and you're thinking, bloody hell, he's had some opera singing lessons, you know, or something. Yeah. That's what a rock singer's meant to sound all nasally and nasty, and you know something like that, you know, and and. Um, I always just thought that's how it should sound. It shouldn't sound like Mario Lanza or something.
0: But I suppose in the 80s, but, you, you, know, had, you, had, you had two different sort of sides. This is kind of simplifying. You had that Trevor Horn, big production sound, you know, like ABC, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and you had the Duran Duran's on their yacht. Then you had all the scruffy indie kids like the Smiths. And, and you had the... Oh, ra- yeah, it's the Smiths. And, and XTC were
1: pretty good, actually. Yeah,
0: and you had that, that kind of red wedge, you know, sort of people getting very angsty about everything and writing and poetry and sort of um, wanting to kick over the system like the Redskins, another band. So did you feel, you know, with, with your sort of makeup, you must have slightly felt somehow straddled between the two? Because you you had been around for yeah. a, you had been around for a decade, and then sort of came into another decade, thinking, "Oh God, I'm a bit old for these young kids at the Red Wedge." But then I'm not really going to be part of the, the latest. Well, I, tri- I,
1: most of the Red Wedge people were about my age. I mean, I went to a Red Wedge meeting because someone was meant to be going there. Oh, I can't remember who I was, whose stead I was doing it in. Probably Captain Sensible's manager. I went with Captain Sensible to a Red Wedge meeting where I was in a room with. Only a handful of people: Billy Bragg, Peter Jenner, Doctor Robert of the Blow Monkeys, um, yeah, Paul Weller. uh, You know the the usual suspects, good good people. Yes. And Anna Anna Joy, whatever her name was, the the leader of Youth CND, I think. And it was a, a basically a left wing construct. They wanted to do something to counterbalance what they felt was a blue wave washing over everything. But I didn't really feel. I just wanted to get on with making my little psychedelic pop records. I think I had more in common with the Dukes of Stratosphere, which was XTC's alter ego. I don't know if you've ever heard any of that. You know, I wanted to make records that were kind of like the '60s records I'd grown up with. I, wasn't, I don't think I was particularly in anyone's loop. Yes. But, um, I think it was in the middle of the in the middle of the '80s, in the 80, in 1986, I became lyricist for Captain Sensible who had an enormous amount in common with musically, Yes. And Robin Hitchcock had been writing for him but had his own career had taken off or was taking off with Midnight Records and that. And, And also I don't think he gelled particularly well with Captain Sensible's producer. So I just suddenly started writing lyrics for about five years for Captain Sensible. So I was not just a lyricist, I was a sort of a menuensis to him. He'd he'd lost his mojo lyric-wise, but he was still very strong musically. And I think I was very handy, I took that bit of the the job off him.
2: Mm.
1: During which time, um, I was persuaded into the studio with my band and the Cleaners from Venus Two started, and we were kind of a lot more polished than the early version, and and borrowed a nice studio in the West End for six weeks to use, and made this record that, you know, kind of did all right, really.
0: Yes, but then in in then you had your your sort of the album, which is kind of probably one of your most famous one, the greatest living Englishman, which is from ninety two. Which, yeah. which had a big budget and was also you, you know worked.
1: It, it didn't have a big budget. We we we, we, had, we had a small budget of about eight thousand, and I don't think we went much over it. And I said to Andy Partridge, "Well, look, I'm quite happy to record on your, in your shed." I have a friend, because he was in Swindon, and I had a friend in Bath who was prepared to lend me lend me his flat for a bit, or at least I could sleep there, so I'd commute from Swindon. as from Bath, between Bath and Swindon, and Andy and I made this record between us in, in his sh- in his shed, because he had this, actually at that time, state-of-the-art ADAT 8 track recorder, and he was a rattling good producer with the hearing of a bat. And We, we got on famously, actually, me and Andy, and of course, it was very easy. And I said, "Look, I'm, I'm, I need to do this. I'm going to be halfway between Santa Claus and Mussolini." I said, "Look, as far as I'm concerned, I don't usually work with producers. So I'll be the Indians, and you be the chief. And I will very, and I will hardly ever not do anything that you suggest. I may hold out for one or two vetoes, which I did. There was a couple of things. He said, "Why don't you? Why can't you do this?" And I said, "I won't do that harmony, not because." I can't do it, but it's not something that I would do. Right. And, and I said, I think it's something that XTC would do, and, and with all respect, we're not making an XTC album. And he looked at me and he said, that's fair enough. And on we moved. <laughs> and that was, I think that was the only time there was ever a bone of contention. It wasn't really even that big. Like, he, was, he was a fabulous bloke to work with.
0: Yes. And then you followed yeah, it up And with the... we made
1: this album, and, and we made this album, and it's just... Because we agreed, and we were singing from the same hymn sheet, um, it was a fabulous album. It was more polished than any album I had made um, up until that time. And uh, of course, the Yanks took it like a shot. You know, they heard it. We we didn't even do a big promo thing on it. It did 11,000 from a standing start in a couple of weeks in America, which was unheard of. And It was just a jolly good idea. It was exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. But even then, the English music press were a bit
0: sniffy about
1: it. There was a, oh, here's this ragamuffin Martin Newell again, who seems to have made this album with Andy Partridge. Um, And and it seems to be getting some interest in America. You know, it's it's because I've done it without their say-so. I've done it without their consent. I'm not saying they're a single beast, but, You know, that London music world is very much, do we know this person? I I suspect it's been like that since the, the times of the coffee houses in the 17th century.
0: Yes. Well, I, th- I
1: suppose... And if you're not you're, you're part of a the club, then you're not part of the
0: club and tough shit, you know? Yeah. Oh, Oops,
1: yes. just said a naughty word. <laughs>
0: Good. <laughs> no, no, because cause, cause quite interestingly, a lot of bands that I've interviewed, I often, you know, they have a five-year narrative. They get together, they have 12 months trying to do something. They get a single John Peel play, they get a John Peel session, then the first album, things are going well. Second album, often quite tricky. Anybody who ever tours America often goes terribly badly. But the, the, the thing is that most people do have that five-year narrative they have problems with each other in the band they also have problems with their publishing but the other thing that knocks a lot of bands out is kind of, oh, and there was a new musical kind of phenomena so a lot of indie bands from that 80s you know, when, when ecstasy became the drug of choice for a lot of people the dance scene took took out those bands oh, then, yeah, and then you had the grunge scene and then that sort of, uh, you know, eventually and will obviously kind of fade oh, Grunge was, I
1: really didn't like grunge, grunge I thought but it was really unhealthy yes. I mean, for a start, sartorially, you know Jeans and check shirts. We'd been that way with Neil Young, I remember, in 1971. I certainly didn't
0: want to go back to that. But then you had that sort <laughs> of. Not that I've ever had, been in it. No, but then you had the Brit pop period that was coming up with people like your Charles, not Charles, Charles Murray, um, Murray, Murray Lachlan Young, and and the poet. So did you? Oh, it's did, poetry, yeah. Did you start to sort of kind of ride onto that kind of uh, slipstream? Um, oh, all?
1: that's that's kind of really what happened. There came this point where. Right at the end of, you know, the 80s, suddenly everything, a rug got whipped out from underneath my feet. And I'd started doing this poem. almost by accident. I'd been doing these satirical poems. It's a long story, so I won't do it. But basically, I hit exactly the right thing at exactly the right time and, and ended up writing poems for the Independent and going on loose ends semi-regularly just because Ned Sherrin liked me. And he liked his poets. He had me on there and John Hegley. So I often say that, you know, um, there was a wave of poets that came up on the coattails of pop music, That you know, the Liverpool poets and all those guys, you yes. know, in, in, in 1967, 68. And then ten years later, in punk, John Cooper Clark and of the stockbroker, uh, people, and Phil Jupiters, actually, who was a performance poet at the time called Porky the Poet. Yes. And, you know, all these people came up on, on punk. And when Baggy, or what they call Baggy, uh, you know, that kind of Shoegazy music and you know the Stone Roses and things like that, which then morphed into Britpop. They had their poets, and that would have been people like me and John Hegley, and to an extent Murray Lachlan Young, I reckon. You well, get he, a wave of good music, you get a wave of good poetry with it.
0: Well, yes, because he was the famous kind of million dollar, no, million pound poet. That was the EMI. They,
1: they called him that. He got an advance probably for five albums. I think. I think Attila, who was a good friend of of his and mine. He's a very good chapter of the stockbroker. He's a real champion of poetry. And um, he knew M- Murray. And he says hey, he didn't get a million. Everyone thinks he got a million. He's probably got about 30 grand, but for five albums, you know. And he was hyped, so he had to live up to that hype. Yes. And Murray's actually levelled out now. He's kind of a a playwright. So I've worked with him once or twice. Yes.
2: Um,
1: but, I, I, but I think, you know, the pressure on someone who was just called the Million Dollar Poet walking around Glastonbury with a butler for a you know I think,
2: <laughs> I
0: think
1: it, I, he was just a poet I think he was a poet and a writer and it settled down, he's still a poet and a writer.
0: Yes, I think it's you, slightly I think it, I think the fame game probably sort of slightly mangled his brain at that stage as well. So that, you
1: get that, you get your you get your blast and I got mine. As a poet I got a real lift. It was almost like a consolation prize for my music career I haven't been cocked up so comprehensively. <laughs> but sometime in the early nineties I was suddenly on the radio and on telly and in the, and in the independent all the time. Yes. And, um, it was just, it was seemed like beginner's luck, but I did actually transfer some of my performance skills and promotional skills over from 20 years in rock and roll and just used it. Yeah. So go to that appointment, get on that show, do that, do this. And after I'd done it, I had a name as a poet and I could have taken it, but what I did was settle down to write poems for the independent and, for, and then for the Sunday Independent, and then uh, for the Sunday Express, and I did it for twenty-eight years, on and off, uh, mostly on. Twenty-eight years, weekly poems for national newspapers, and became, by default, for what it's worth, probably the most published living poet in the country. I was told that by a former Secretary General of the Arts Council, um, not as a matter of record, but that, as a fact. But. Yes. Um, and when, and and, but it, it didn't make any difference because you don't cut any, It doesn't. It does not butter any past trips with the poetry establishment, who are, you know, kind of rather high-minded souls who live living in the in the misty minarets of academia, you know. And they sort of live in Ox, Oxford and Cambridge, and they kid themselves and they get hand in hand with the arts council, the poetry society, and they all speak a bit like this, and and um, they. They hold them. They they've appointed themselves curators of it, and then they executed a, I reckon, a pretty, graceless hijack of the whole medium. So that uh, people who rhyme or are funny, there is no place for light verse. But the, the person who should be the poet laureate of this country is, without a doubt, Pam Mayers.
2: Yes, I was going to say Pam. A the
1: shelves. <laughs> she fills theatres. She's brilliant. She's absolutely staggeringly good. And on top of it all, she's a. A, a good comedian too, yes. and, she, and, and in an evening with Pam Ayers is is, is is great. And um, we l- we love and, Pam. And, and, so. and they do not acknowledge it. They, she's not mentioned in dispatches. They, you know, it's okay, what about Pam Ayers? They kind of don't talk about her. She should have been poet laureate. And as John Cooper Clark said, why? Because she'd have really loved it. Yes. And uh, she should have had it. She should have done. And, it. and look- not that there's anything wrong with Simon Armitage because Simon Armitage, who I've also worked with. He's a very good chap. I mean, but
0: he's another safe pair of hands. Yes, he's not going to drop the ball. But look, then in ninety eight, ninety six, you you reformed your 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 uh, one of your early bands for a reunion gig. How did that feel? Because obviously, decades had passed, and then you met these guys again and said, "Let's do it." Um,
1: what what we did one or two gigs in Germany, I think. What ninety six? What are you talking about? Yes. Did you sort Were of? Are you talking about Chip or the penis
0: from Venus? Um, Jip.
1: Oh yeah, well, they just had a twenty-year reunion, uh, just in one place, Gutuslow, where we used to g- go in Germany. You could Go to in Germany a lot, uh, the people who supported us when a lot of other people didn't, and and um, so they said we're having a twenty-year reunion gig. So after twenty years, I, I we all met in an old, you know, church in Exeter to rehearse. And we rehearsed, and we went out and did two gigs. But it, it wasn't a, a reunion as such. We didn't make any record. It was a reunion for two gigs, yes, for a weekend in Gooteslo, and it was, and it was great. And all the incarnations of the different singers. The singer, there were three singers, uh, and we, you know, took it in turns and shared the stage duties, and and it was great to see all the guys. But it wasn't, it wasn't for general public consumption or anything. Or apart from for those nice Germans who'd supported us when we were younger.
0: Yes, well, I I suppose speaking to a lot of bands, doing doing sort of the gigs in Germany is always important because in a sweeping statement, they say they buy a lot of merchandise and CDs, and that's something that keeps most bands going, you know.
2: Well, at the
1: height of his fame with the police, I heard that Sting, on his passport, had his job description as T-shirt salesman because he reckoned he made more money from T shirt sales than he did from the record royalties. <laughs> Despite all those record sales. The merch. I don't know if that's a joke or not, but it's certainly if you go if if you have on your passport T shirt salesman, it's certainly a more sensible thing to put on your passport, passport than T shirt salesman. Yes. than than musician because um if you're a musician people are just gonna assume you're trouble and they're gonna be turning you over and looking at your financial affairs, examining your luggage and all the rest of it. And I wish I'd just called myself a T-shirt salesman or a reporter or a gardener years ago before I started all those foreign tours. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> because,
1: you know, I just got turned over the whole lot, you know, all the time.
0: Difficult. You know, it
1: was, uh, and I looked the part, so they would turn me over.
0: Absolutely. And then as you sort of, as we come up to the last couple of decades, and I mean, by then you'd sort of got yourself... Quite steady in the world of an artist, and and was it just a case of just keeping the gig together by then?
1: Well, I was. I'm a writer performer. You know, I write and, and I perform poetry, and there's a good comic edge to it. And I, I don't do many music gigs. I'm doing a spot. Um, I'm doing a spot at, at um, Norwich Arts Centre, but only a a token 25 minute spot, and possibly a question and answer thing. Because, you know, I, those songs still hold good, you know. Some of the sort of things that were being played on the radio, Living With Victoria Gray and Elia Kuriakin looked at me, you know, Cleaners From Venus singles. Yes. They were played on the radio, on Radio 1, but usually at night, so that doesn't count.
0: And was there, <laughs> and was, and was there ever a sort of a point in your, in your sort of career in life where you suddenly thought, actually... You know, because a lot of people who have become artists or are artists, they sort of often have that great self-doubt of like, am I just faking it? Am I going to get found out? Uh,
1: Exactly. That appears in a film. There there does come a point. There are two points in in the last 40 years where suddenly you think you're going somewhere and suddenly you're not. The whole rug's been whipped out comprehensively from underneath you and you think, perhaps I'm just not good enough. Perhaps I was just like good but not great. And... And in that time, I mean there are no, no, no such things as forted stardom rights or something like that if there if had been, I'd, I'd, I'd have been very rich by that, um, and all through court. But I, I just thought, well, that's tough. I'll go and be a gardener. And yes. I became, and there are various junctures where I just became a gardener, because it's the best work in the world, you know, and it soon sorts you out. Like a old boy around here says, Mark, you see at the end of the day's work, you see where you've gone, <laughs> <laughs> well, you see where you've been, boy. Yes. Yeah. And um, and I just became a little old boy for a while. And I was good at pruning apple trees. I could sort out old apple trees and um, hedges. Good at hedges. Yeah. In fact, I thought of changing my stage name to the
0: hedge at one point. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it would have sounded but, um, a bit no, like the hedge. Edge.
1: Uh, yeah, well exactly, that's the whole thing, yeah. So you know, so I'm I've decided to call myself a hedge, I announced to a record company one day. and they just they saw no irony in this. They just they like, oh, I tell you I'm only kidding.
2: <laughs> but
1: yeah, I go I don't do a normal job because that's the whole thing about showbiz, you're not entitled to this stuff. And I say in the film, so you know, if you think your is driving you mad, leave it, walk away, and much to your chagrin. You'll never be followed. <laughs> no one will follow. What's happened? Oh, he's gone out. Well, he's an artist. He will go out. What if he doesn't come back? We'll get another one. There's plenty of new flesh that will throw itself into the machine. Yes. And I just went out. I'd be a gardener for six months or a year or something. Then eventually the creative thing, out Out would come the studio stuff. I'd start writing songs. And before we knew where we were, there was another album and another record contract.
2: Yes. You know,
1: or something would happen. With me, nothing doesn't happen for very long. You know, because my whole life has just been a trail of then the phone rings or there's an email or there's a letter or someone says, do you fancy doing so-and-so? And And I go either yes or no. But usually if it doesn't involve too much travelling or going on tour with a rock band, which at 66 I don't think I should do, although there are plenty of wasics who think they would like to do that, but uh, believe me, it's no fun after a while. It wears you out and you don't get any writing done. (coughs)
0: No, absolutely. And I was going to and I like say,
1: writing and recording are my chief loves.
0: Yes, and are you are you sort of finding um, new new audience? I'll I'll sort of young kids starting to discover you because I know there's a few young kids Yeah, po- it's me. It just it just kind of. All um, right. It just yeah. So I was just going to say because there's quite a few young poets I know who often name check. You know, the, you know. The, the usual, you know, I suppose, you know, that sort of slight John Cooper Clark, Martin Newell, you know, Attila the Stockbroker. So you, I, I, I'll sort of, you know, like, oh, my God, that person could be my granddaughter co- or grandson who's just... Ca- yeah, ha- I've ha- got a
1: big following in America of young people. Yes. For my music, um, because they've suddenly discovered that I've been an influence on, I don't know, bands that I've never heard of or, or, or hadn't heard of. who are quite, quite big, you know, like, um, I don't know, artists like Ariel Pink... And a Mac DeMarco and and uh, MGMT. These are all supposed to be people who I influenced. I mean, I listen to their music and it's great, but I can't hear my influence in it really. But it seems that everyone else can, and so uh, that I've got their I've got their following too. So you know, I got picked up by an American record company who just said, C- you know, can we put your records out on vinyl here? And I went, yeah, all right, and you know, got paid for it and everything.
0: Blimey, that must be lovely. It's
1: been a big surprise, a little, a little golden starburst that, that I've been vindicated. But that doesn't mean that um, the British rock press are going to recognise that. I mean, half the people who used to, you know, be the Razor Boys, you know, the old NME and things like that, they've gone or got old or went off to write middle-class football books or whatever they do. What a bitch. And... um and, and then um, because I remember telling a reviewer from one of the Glossy Boys comics once, because he, he, I think he thought he was going to be talking to a Sid Barrett character, and he said, kind of like, so what are you doing now then, Martin? And I said, writing for a bigger comic than you, Sunshine. And I got in terrible trouble for that.
0: <laughs> yes, that must have gone down like a lead balloon. But I think Humble pie. Well, buy- it wasn't him. It wasn't him
1: because he then went back and told tales to his editor. who then told a hapless PR in charge of promoting one of my albums that um, Martin Newell's records will never be reviewed as long as I am editor of this magazine. Oh dear! And 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 I said, well, that's just censorship, really, isn't it? If you did, if they, if it was to be a, been done in an Iron Curtain country, it would like, said, well, a typical communist censorship. But they do it if they don't fancy fancy your chances, they'll do it here as well.
2: Yes.
1: And I've, got, I've 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 got no, you know, I've done I've done it without them. You know, I don't care. No. I've got my beer in a sideboard here.
0: Absolutely. <clears> and what and what would you say to a, a an eighteen year old or an eight, your eighteen year old self starting out in this sort of the world that is... Coming.
1: What would I say to an 18-year-old now? Well, I'd say, Can, you, can yeah. you not leave the damp towels in the... Bathroom? Can you switch the lights off? This electricity is costing me money.
2: Yes, that's my money.
1: That's what I'd say to an 18-year-old. And yes. I'd say, and can you hang the damp towels up? Don't leave them scrunched up on the floor because they smell terrible after a while if you just leave them like that on the bathroom floor.
0: And I say, can you take the rubbish out, please? Absolutely, because most of it is yours. So, any, any That's other?
1: That's what I'd say to an eighteen-year-old.
0: <laughs> and anybody who was thinking I might become an artist or a, you know, yes, I would,
1: I would, I would say, I would say something to them. If if I said only one thing, it would probably be this. Yes. Because you have a talent, and you want to do something, say so be a, a musician or an artist or whatever. Do not assume that that is your only talent, or yet your salient talent because you may find like i who uh, like i did um i wanted to be a, a rock singer you know and i found actually that i could write as well i could find i found that i was pretty good at doing you know light rhyming poetry and made a living from it when the music business was being very scant on wages and 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 which paid me consistently now if you said to me when I was tw- 18, when I was 20, if you, if you write poetry you're going to make more money for quite a chunk of the time than you will do rock singing I'd have just said something unprincipled to to you but you that that's what I would say so if you think you are talented and you want to go into the arts explore other, have a go at other stuff. You never know what you might find. Basically, if you're in the arts, you've run away to join the circus. So you better learn a bit of juggling and a bit of bareback riding and a bit of trapeze as well. It might come in handy.
2: Yes.
1: Do the jobs. Do, Do the job. jobs. Left the boxes. Go roading. Just immerse yourself in it. Do every job going because you don't know where it's going to lead. But if you're, not, if you're not at the workstation, you're not trying to stuff out, you're never going to find out. You're just going to be someone at home or in a pub talking about it. So, yeah, if you want to get involved in the arts, go and do everything you can, and and, and you will find other stuff that you are not only enjoying, but you're probably good at.
0: Yes, and we'll work out. I wish
1: someone had told me that.
0: Yes. Well, look, Martin, this has been fantastic, and thank you ever so much. So... I'll put this out um, very soon because obviously it's Thursday that you're going to be in Norwich. And, um, and I'll link it, well, you know, you can link it to your whatever social media platforms. I
1: can do. It. Well, let me know and I'll, I'll just bung it up. If you can bung that, you know, whatever form it's in, uh, what form would it come in? Oh, it I'll, I'll, link I'll,
0: um, I'll do the podcast of, of, of it and then I'll put out the show as well so that you can. You can... Is it, it Mixed Cloud? Um not quite or something like it's something like that. You'll be fine. It'll be it's on Pod okay. But you'll you'll get well, it. if I
1: can if I can post it onto my social media I'll do that. Oh, see, that, that would
0: be fantastic. And we'll do that. Yeah, that's
1: that's what I do so I've got a big following on Facebook.
0: Excellent. Okay, look, I'll do that yeah. I'll do that tonight and I'll also put the show I- out on future radio for for this week as well. If
1: you check if you check out my Facebook site you find loads of stuff. I've got Facebook, I've got a Facebook page facebook um personal account and um and i update it all the time and i've got twitter as well brilliant and, and my manager runs an instagram thing for me too
0: we've covered all bases yeah yes good okay look martin so that'd be good that'll be brilliant okay i'll do that later
1: anyway, but... you've asked me some very interesting questions
0: uh, Dave, so that's great. <laughs> no
1: problem. I'll be most verbose as usual.
0: Excellent. No, that's good. It's good. Well, thank we're, you. It's so
1: better than not talking, isn't it? You don't want silence.
0: No, that would be, you know, no. Mime artists are quite hard going, aren't they? So, um, especially on radio. So, um, <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> who, who was who was that person in the 70s we all love? Marcel Mersu. <laughs> Marcel Marceau. Uh, so, Marcel
1: Marceau, and there was Kenny Everett did a did a parody of him called it was called Marcel Wave, <laughs> which I think is a type of hairdo from the fifties or something, isn't it? The yes. Marcel
0: Wave, I don't know. Something yeah. something groovy. It was it came after the mullet, probably. Anyway, look, this is good. Um, but have a great evening, and I'll keep in touch. Have a nice time in the. All fun. right, sir. Take care. I'll see, speak soon. See you later. Bye. Yep. Bye. Bye
1: now. Bye. <laughs>